0: Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the Third Sector Mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC which, along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities, author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts Books. Introducing your host, Paul
1: Lowe. Welcome, listeners. I hope I find you well. In this health-related podcast, it is my absolute pleasure to be having a conversation with Dr. Sean Hussain the author of the truly outstanding book, The Big Prescription, Balancing the Three Principles of Enduring Health. Along with Dr. Sean, as he is affectionately known, we will be talking around the first chapter of this book, The Foundation of Health. Dr. Sean, welcome.
2: Hi, Paul. Good to see you again.
1: In the foreword of your book, Lauren Slocum describes how you got it when understanding the importance of physical, emotional and spiritual health. A good starting point, methinks, for you to set the scene.
2: Yes, well, health, I look at health in those three areas as defined by the World Health Organization. We're talking about physical well-being, mental well-being and social well-being. And these are the only areas within our health that we can truly have an influence on. So in terms of who we are as individuals, we are a combination of our genes expressed in our environment Whilst we can't easily change our genes, we've all got the ability to adapt to or adjust or alter the perception that we have or the interactions we have within our environment to help support our physical and mental and social well-being. And that's really the aim behind what i try tried to write in the book, to give people simple, practical, easy advice and simple changes that they can implement into their lives to naturally improve their health without the need for doctors or nurses or medication.
1: Okay, so... The World Health Organization 90, 1948 definition of health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So some 70 years on, do you feel that that definition stood the, uh, the test of time?
2: I'm not sure if it stood the test of time, but I fully agree with it. I think it's, uh, it really is the standard that we should be setting ourselves against. I don't know of many people who have that level of health, but it's not really about aiming for complete physical well-being and complete mental well-being, complete social well-being. It's about looking for areas of improvement that we all have um, as we work towards improving our health uh, naturally without using or hopefully without relying on, on pills. So, uh, I yes, I, I'm, I'm actually quite in favor of that definition, and I think it's a, it's a very powerful one to have and it helps keep keep us uh, reminded of the standard that we should aim for.
1: Okay. Thomas Edison quote, the doctor of the future will give no medicine, but will interest patients in care of the human frame in diet and in the cause and prevention of human disease. Am I right in suggesting this philosophy challenges conventional medicine?
2: I don't think so. No, but I think that we are becoming increasingly distracted From the lifestyle elements of many diseases that are now becoming increasingly prevalent in today's society. I think it's a very good quote and uh, it's a good reminder for us, uh, particularly for practicing clinicians to have amongst us, that, you know, lifestyle problems also require lifestyle solutions. And it's becoming increasingly obvious that we can't out-medicate our way out of unhealthy lifestyle choices.
1: Okay. So... As you know, uh, Dr. Sean, from the conversations we've had um, off record, off air, so to speak, um, some of the stuff that I research and follow is around Rupert Spira and his um, insights into around, at our true uh, pure core being, we are peace, we are love, and we are happiness. And I think if, if I can just focus in on, say, the last one, the happiness element... Is that ultimately the umbrella of combining all our various aspects of health to make us happy, to to let us feel as if we're happy and contented and, and life's actually worth living?
2: I think that's what we're all seeking, really, isn't it? We just want to be happy. We want to find a way to be happy. But unfortunately, we kind of... Create a lot of rules around what happiness needs to look like. You know, I will be happy if I manage to do this or achieve that or get this or earn a certain amount of money or be in a relationship with this person. I think sometimes we can set up those kind of rules and, and, and make it a very difficult game to play uh, in terms of seeking happiness. I very much like what Robbins once said um, many years ago that uh, a good way to look at happiness is by determining how much progress you're we'll making day to day week to week and uh, year on year in terms of where we are and where we want to be and how we're improving and meeting those areas. And uh, the three areas I often look at are our health. Obviously, I feel that's the most important and I recognize that I'm completely biased, Um, but also relationships with with family, with friends, with uh, clients, with our community. And then the third area is our vocational, or more broadly, how we're serving the world in a professional nature and obviously income is a byproduct of that service. So if we're seeking or if we're achieving or gaining progress in one or more of those three areas, we start to feel happier. And that to me is what we should uh, aim to be working on on a regular basis. And that is how I would look at how we can uh, expand happiness within our lives.
1: That's very interesting to hear that because one of the approaches that I've developed is actually based on the how approach and how being an acronym for more or less what you've just said. So the H is for the health, the O is for others brackets relationships and the W is for wealth. Um, So it's quite interesting to hear that um, objective point of view, because obviously we've never discussed my how model, but to hear that from a a medical professional is actually, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting for me. Because they are, I believe, three very obvious and very stout pillars in our life.
2: Yes, I, I believe they are. And, and I also feel that wealth is, is not just about money. It's, it's about, uh, you know, we can look at money as a byproduct of what we're doing in, in the world and, and how we're making a difference, how we're um, performing acts of service to make a positive change in the world. So that, that's also a key distinction that I would make.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because whilst I describe the how model um, as one of the approaches, the overarching approach I use is around the the actual three pillars is around purpose. Because without a purpose, well, what are we waking up for each morning? What are we doing? We're like, I, I sort of regularly use the example of a rudderless ship mm. being tossed around in life's ocean. It's got no direction. One wave in life will come along and batter it, then another one, and it just meanders aimlessly. So purpose gives us that sense of direction. But that's fine. But unless we're actually enjoying life, it's kind of meaningless. It's, it's actually paradoxically unpurposeful. Mm-hmm. So that's where I bring in the second P of prosperity, because we actually need and want to enjoy life mm-hmm. to make that journey of purpose seem worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And as you quite rightly allude to, I think, you know, the general perception is that's around wealth, but that to me diminishes it dramatically because it's around so much more. My, num- my Personally, my number one priority in my life by a country mile is my health. Mm-hmm. At the exclusion of everything, and I include my family, my loved ones, because, you know, to quote another uh, Robbinsism, without being the very best we can be, we've got nothing left to give to anybody anyway. Mm. Um, you know, we can have all the millions in the world or fame and fortune, but if we haven't got our health, what have we got?
2: Yes, I mean, the, the, the Buddha famously said that uh, without, uh, without health, life is not life. It's only a state of languor and suffering. And uh, we, look, we need to look at health as using it as a tool, not an outcome. It's not about, you know, having great health. It's about what we can do with great health, what we can achieve as a result of great health. Anything we want to do in life, we can do better and faster and more productively, more efficiently, if we have our health at optimal levels. And we're also in a stronger position to enjoy and reap the benefits of what we do and what we achieve.
1: Absolutely. And then the third P of my pillars is Philanthropy. Based on, you know, we've we've touched on Robbins' approach and his six human needs and the highest human need of contribution, giving back. Mm -hmm. We've got a purpose. We're enjoying our purpose. But surely when we take stock of everything, it has to be, and I love this from Stephen Covey's Ninth Habit, leave the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Because other than that, aren't we just marking selfishly, but just marking time? Mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of knit it together. So it was very interesting going back to the Howell model to sort of to see you pinpoint that and um, um, you know know that it's got some you know some solid foundation, which from a personal point of view and I, I know it has, and I've tested the model. But to hear it as I say from a medical professional, it's um, yet again another endorsement. So I thank you for that insight.
2: Very
1: welcome. Okay, um, I want to touch upon now, if I may. Um, coaching and what, how that plays a part in the modern doctor's practice, if at all?
2: I think it plays a bigger part than we really realize. I mean, the, the old paradigm of coaching is that, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're dealing with healthcare, we're trying to take people away from illness and into health, but coaching is more about taking people that are actually quite well and quite stable and quite comfortable but they want more. They want to have optimal health and energy and well-being and vitality. And I feel that's where coaching comes in. People still need support around areas of health through coaching whilst not actually being acutely unwell. For example, um, if someone is um, morbidly obese or is, uh, has high blood pressure and they're looking to implement positive changes in their lifestyle, whether it's through diet or whether it's through exercise or smoking cessation or mindfulness or whatever practice it might be, many of which are scientifically proven to help people, they may well, may well benefit from having a coach to support them with that. And I know in the United States now we're getting um, more health coaches there. and It's starting to emerge in this country. And I believe uh, that the NHS, um, I do remember reading that they're looking at investing in having health coaches to help people with such problems and uh, help them find a better way to solve them and to address them.
1: Okay. Um, and one particular strong aspect of coaching is is the need to take responsibility and I know from having read your book two or three times now um that you're you're consistent on that need for for people to take the responsibility for their own well for their own health care It's not all down to the doctor can you fix me kind of approach. Do you care to elaborate any more around that responsible element?
2: Well yes, I think this is uh, an area that I always tread cautiously on because um I don't want people to think that their illnesses are their faults and that's not the message we're trying to give. What we're trying to say is there are things that we can do to help you, but there are also things that you can do to help you and let's work in a collaborative way to really get the best results we possibly can. When we're treating people who have, for example, depression um, and you know, if they warrant or if it's severe enough to actually warrant antidepressant therapy or medication, then it's not nearly as effective. Um, as having that with counselling, with therapy, with psychotherapy, um, with cognitive behavioural therapy, compared to just you know sitting in a corner, popping pills every day, and just fingers mm. crossed, hope for the best, that isn't really a, um, a sustainable way to overcome symptoms of depression. And uh, so we have to look at the collaborative approach. What can we do collectively? That's always going to be more powerful than what the individual can do. And so you know the old a model that we used to have where a patient would come in and say okay doctor these are my problems now they're your problems fix them um that's not really how things work and and frankly i don't think that's how they should ever have worked we've got to work in collaboration together with with our patients with our clients to um create solutions and ensure they're implemented and give support where necessary and also give accountability
1: mm, i agree and i agree from a A very deep personal perspective, because when I look back on my own journey um, of a youngster growing up against the backdrop of, of violence and addiction... And what I know now, and I guard against the, you know, the over subjectivity and, oh, you know, because, you know, time plays tricks with our mind and one and one can make six because it's convenient to do so. But that said, you know, I know from the conversations I've had with many people that as I look back, how coaching would have actually benefited me, you know, in an era where, you know, even as a child, it was like, just basically shut up. Kids should be seen and not heard. Just get on with it. And if somebody's giving you a good hiding, well, I'm going to give you another one because you must have deserved it anyway. So it was a bit like a dog chasing its tail round and round and round and round.
2: Yeah, that sounds very familiar. (laughs)
1: Yeah, you know, nobody really listening. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that, you know, I had anybody to listen to me anyway. But as I say, I put the modern day situation based on what I know now against that scenario from many moons ago and how I feel that quite dramatically, that would have had a real strong influence in my progression rather than you know years of um, limiting beliefs. Um, this, these labels I gave myself creating this identity, which was really based on vulnerability and fear mm-hmm. because I was so insecure. My world was so uncertain. I needed a survival facade to survive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I needed certainty in my life, to quote Robbins yet again, because I had none. So I put that coaching context, as I say, but back in the, uh, in the modern day medical practice and um, kind of reinforce about, you know, how critical I perceive it would have been. What's your thoughts around, am I looking at that too kind of simplistically, notwithstanding, obviously you haven't got all the insights of, you know, what happened then and, and what have you, but from that very vague um, picture I've, I've tried to paint, does that, Am I being too simplistic around that?
2: No, I don't think you are. And, and as I mentioned, I, I think there's elements to that story that I can relate to from my own personal experience. Um, I think the point that I would make would be: it's not so much what's happening around you; it's how you're responding to it, how yeah. you're internalising it, and what you decide um, to how how you decide to define it, and then ultimately what what you're going to do from there with it. Um, I had a lot of um, personal problems and, and um, problems around confidence, um, very insecure and shy. Um, and uh, also at the same time, I wanted attention, <laughs> um, which is a strange combination. But um, you know, I think whilst I wasn't medically unwell and you know, there wasn't a psychiatric label that anyone could actually place on me at the time, I didn't really feel that I was where I wanted to be at that stage in life, and yes, I, I would probably benefit from having a coach as well. I think the purpose of a coach is to help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Um, you know, recognizing that actually, you know what, where you are is okay. That's where you want to be, but where do you want to be? Um, and you know, I, I wanted to be more confident and outgoing, and you know, um, I wanted to be. Um, Recognised uh, for my, you know, my work that I was doing at school, and, and I was a, you know, a fairly bright student. Um, but I think um, I think I, I can certainly relate to um, a lot of what you're saying there, and um, and I think there is certainly a place for for coaching uh, throughout schools, without a doubt.
1: How do you think that would go down with the uh, the profession as a whole?
2: Well, I mean, it's not for everybody. And, and this is what I often say, you know, um, you know, that there isn't really a broad brush approach. It's just mm. about presenting options to people. Yes. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, a new scheme that's going to be launched now for um, National Health Service general practitioners, which is confidential counseling and support and, and therapy for stressed out doctors. And, uh, and, and that's great, but um It's not for everybody. Mm. You know, you don't have to take it on board. And, and, uh, you know, um, it's not something that is um, the answer to everything, nor should it proclaim to be. And I would say, I would present the same argument with um, presenting that model in schools. But again, it comes back down to what the needs are in that particular place. Do they need that? Or do they have enough support um, in place? And it's also important to remember that schools now are very different to the schools that you and I went to back Mm. in the year. um, you know, in the seventies and eighties, um, in that there's a lot more support already in place. You know, there are very um, clear sort of services that people can be sign- signposted to if they're feeling stressed or worried or anxious, um, or if they want pastoral services or they want uh, support from their peers. Uh, they have systems in place in some schools, um, and that's really great to see. And I do hope that uh, models like that continue.
1: Okay, so in our, um, in our quick bite sessions, uh, subsequent to this Dr. Sean, we'll be digging a little bit deeper on sort of relevant aspects around physical health, around um, mental well-being, social well-being, et cetera, et etc. But I just wondered if we could just kind of whistle stop these. you know, you've got a subsequent six uh, chapters in your book. That, that, uh, that dive deeper. I just wonder if we could kind of have a little bit of a whistle stop on each of those um, ensuing chapters just to, uh, just to tease the audience a little bit.
2: <laughs> sure. Well, um, so those are the three areas I talk about as defined by the World Health Organization, physical well-being, mental well-being and social well-being. So what's important to note is that that is referring to the three areas, our our physical bodies, our minds, and our environments, our interactions with our environment. It's important to notice that each of these three areas are fluid. They're constantly changing. The physical body is constantly regenerating itself. Old cells are dying. New cells are replacing them. Same with our emotional well-being and our our mental health. It's constantly changing. It's fluid. We have new thoughts that are arising all the time. Um, estimated up to 60,000 thoughts per day. And these can all potentially lead to emotions and behaviors and outcomes. And then our social environments are constantly changing um, in terms of the, our interactions with TV, movies, internet, different environments, different people we meet, um, different conversations we have, different relationships we develop. So what I attempt to do is ask the question, how can we engineer these three areas of health and really look at how we're supporting them to take us to the level of health that we want to achieve. And that's really what I try and focus on in my book and present various different evidence-based um, approaches that people can take that are very practical and uh, show results very quickly.
1: Okay. So, like I say, if we can just whistle-stop on the uh, on the in six uh, chapters, physical health, for example, what – in a very brief way, what would you say? If, if if I was to say to you almost metaphorically, put you in a corner and say, give me one piece of advice that could really drive me forward. And, and I'm going, I'm really testing you, obviously, because I'm almost adopting a one size fits all mentality. And as you've already defined quite rightly, that's not practical because we're all so different. But if you had to paint a banner that says in terms of physical health, this is one thing, probably more than any other that would serve you. Is there such a thing or am I being too idealistic?
2: No, I think there's such a thing. I think if you're going to back me into a corner and ask me for one thing more than anything else, I would say deep breathing exercises. That would okay. be my one go-to thing that I highly recommend people do. And I'll give a few anecdotes of uh, evidence to support that. Um, we had um, I was invited on uh, BBC Radio actually recently to discuss a study Another study it was a trial, really, of um, 9,000 school children where they introduced deep breathing exercises on a regular basis for all these children to practice for 30 minutes a day. And they found as a result of that, after nine weeks, they managed to reduce stress by 90% and increase concentration by 80%, which is just phenomenal. It's incredible. Uh, but there are so many other different um, pieces of evidence we can put together from various research papers to support how powerful such breathing exercises can be. So, whenever you remember, just take five or ten very deep breaths. And particularly if you're getting a lot of anxiety or worry or stress, do it all the time, anytime you can remember, and just see how much better you feel, see how much more confident you feel.
1: Does that have to be through the nose and out through the mouth, or does it not? As so long as you 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 are taking, as you say, those deep breaths.
2: I don't really think it matters. No? Um, You know, different people say, you know, breathe through the nose, hold it for a count of four, and then breathe out for a count of eight. I think that's that's getting too technical. Just start with the breathing and see Mm. where it takes you.
1: Okay, yeah. Wow. What about the mental well-being? If I could yet again push you and give you, you know, give me a banner, an all-proclaiming banner, what would that be? Is there such a (laughs) thing?
2: I think um, mental health has, uh, you know, only started to really get the attention it deserves over the last couple of decades or so. And I think it really is a a critical area that, um, you know, does need more attention. And the good thing is now, as it's starting to get attention, we've got more support services available than we ever have had before to support people with mental health problems and emotional uh, well-being or stress-related issues that they're experiencing. And stress is one of the biggest things that's happening in society at the moment. I, I genuinely feel it's you know um, a, one of the greatest silent epidemics of modern times uh, in terms of what's going on at the moment. You just need to you know go on social media or watch the news, and you can see how stressed out people are. Um, in terms of mental health, there, there are a lot of different ways to approach it, and and obviously my what I've written about in my book is is not specifically geared towards people who have you know. Um, are on psychiatric medication or have diagnosed conditions that uh, have currently been treated. Well, it's really about um, supporting people who are perhaps just having um, challenges that they would like to address. And a lot of it comes back to mindfulness, mindfulness practices that we can all undertake. And when I say mindfulness, you know, it seems to be such a word that's being almost overused nowadays. Uh, a mindful practice is basically something that, when you do, you are completely immersed in doing. You're not thinking about anything else. You're not worrying about the past. You're not stressing about things in the future. You're totally present in that moment, and that can be anything from well, meditation would be one of my favourites, but it can be exercise. It can be going for a walk, cooking, reading a book, um, fishing. A friend, uh, a patient of mine, and I found that very beneficial, and uh, we. He was having a lot of uh, stress-related problems at the time and feeling extremely anxious. And uh, after a long conversation um, and uh, a few uh, heated discussions, he eventually agreed to go fishing for an hour every day because that was the one thing he loved more than anything else in the world. And he came back and saw me a week later. He was like a different person. Um, So it's not the act of fishing. It's the act of being present in that moment, doing something you absolutely love, doing something healthy. Um, so, you know, uh, there was a study about knitting recently and how that can help um, elderly people with uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and uh, manages to control many of their symptoms. So, I mean, you know, whatever works for you, if, um, you know, if you have a musical instrument that you enjoy playing but haven't done so for a while, if you enjoy creating art, drawing, whatever it might be. Find out what that practice is, something that perhaps you absolutely love doing but you haven't done for a long time and start doing that for just five or ten minutes every day to help release that stress. As I often say, every day can potentially bring stress into our lives. So every day we've got to do something to help release that stress, something healthy, and it's got to be releasing the stress. It's not about escaping from it with, you know, um, a glass of wine or, or a cigarette or whatever it might be. It's about actually what we can do after we release it. And um, you know, for me, things like meditation, cooking, running, gym, they work wonders, and that's always gonna be my my sort of go-to places.
1: Meditation, I love that word. And obviously, um, yeah, again from the conversations we've had off air, I both I know we both share the the merits of that, but I'm sure you've heard this comment time and time and time again. I can't concentrate for more than two seconds. What's your response to that, Dr. Sean?
2: Why are you trying to concentrate? Exactly. It's not about concentration. It's, it's the opposite of concentration. It's about relaxing yeah. and just being where you are and, you know, noticing what thought enters your head um, from wherever it might come from. And then just observing that thought, not expressing it, not suppressing it, just letting it do what it wants to do and let it just fade away. And then a new thought will come up. Once again, just observe what it is, let it fall away. To The point where these thoughts become so small and, and so infrequent that you reach a really deep place of stillness inside you. And that's actually a very powerful state to be in. And if you can practice that just for five or 10 minutes a day, um, how many Health-related issues can improve, many of them, including uh, heart disease, including cardiovascular problems, um, anxiety, depression, hypertension, obesity, um, many mental health issues. Um, There's scientific literature to support the use of uh, meditative practices such as transcendental meditation.
1: I often liken those... um potentially distracting thoughts that which as you say come and go to that of a petulant child stamping his or her feet <laughs> and it's yes i'm observing but i'm not buying it yeah because obviously if you fuel it it gets worse and it gets worse
2: yeah absolutely you just have to detach from it and that's the key part of it detaching from what's going on mm. and that emotional detachment can be very powerful i think um it's something that uh is it's an interesting area i mean you know one of the things that we're often taught about is how, um, as a doctor, you know, um, I used to be a surgeon, for example, and if if someone I knew had a ruptured appendix, they would not let me operate on that person. Why? Because I'm emotionally attached to the situation. But if we have an equally qualified surgeon come in who is completely detached from what's going on and has no emotional relationship, is just focused completely presently on doing the job Mm. that he's absolutely very skilled at doing, doesn't have that emotion running through his head at the time won't interfere with his practice. So it's really important to practice that emotional detachment whilst, whilst doing meditation, just being still and being present. See what it does for you.
1: I think in life in general, you know, to have that, um, as you call it, that detachment, you know, for me, the epitome of faith and that, you know, I'll go back to the labels thing of growing up uh, as a kid, constantly ask whether I was blue or green because of, my being brought up a Protestant, blue, but very heavily influenced by Irish Catholics, green, and I was kind of caught in the middle, so this label that and I refused I mean, I didn't have in those days the the emotional intelligence to understand my response was very crudely, "Go away, go away," or words to that effect, and mind your own business." I now rationalize it is I wouldn't be labeled because I I felt I was so different from mainstream kids. I wouldn't run with the, you know, with the hierarchy. But I use that as an example to introduce the word faith, because what faith is for me is irrespective of that religious connotation. And it's about having that detachment to know that what will be, will be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the elements uh, are a great example. You know, oh, we're going on holiday for a week to Cornwall and I want the sun to shine. And, you know, I've bought this and I've bought all this sun cream. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what you might want it. Mm-hmm. Set that intention, but let it go. And for me, the three most important words I have ever heard in this, in this, in this life are those let it go. Set that intention. And let it go because, yet again, when I go back to my Emerging from the Forest book, my attachment to Nottingham Forest, they controlled my life. Mm-hmm. If they won, I was absolutely on cloud 59, let alone cloud nine. Mm-hmm. But they lost two games in 1974 mm-hmm. to Newcastle in the second replay of the cup. Mm-hmm. And then two days later at Craven Cottage to Fulham, both teams in black and white.
2: Mm-hmm. The second one, I couldn't cope. And did that black and white shirt make it even worse, being a North county rival? Um, <laughs> I didn't. Well, you know, a
1: close friend of mine, Les Brad, who's, who's um, obviously going to do a, um, a very nostalgic uh, trip down memory lane, down Meadow Lane, um, not as profound as, uh, as August 1975 when he scored that 89th minute winner. Um, That devastated me. But in 74, March the 23rd to be precise, 1974, barely 14 years of age, I attempted suicide because my belief system that I had created was so strong around Nottingham Forest. Now that that gave me, and that was my raison d'etre, that was my reason to live in the absence of anything else, Fueled by a drinking addiction, even at that very early age, Mm -hmm. and a propensity for violence. Because that's, that's what I was taught. And this Irish uh, brawling mentality that, I'd been, that had been fed into me at mm-hmm. a very early age, that was it. That was my way of life. Mm-hmm. So my faith thing that I've developed over the years, and I've seen my way through that nonsense, and I held that for decades, by the way, that wasn't a flash in the pan. But the power of beliefs and the power of words, what we tell ourselves You know, I always use that example of um, if you have 50 beef burgers a day physically, you'd be unfit. But if you have those similar kind of bad words about what you, you know, if you have 50 bad words about yourself every day, you're going to become emotionally unfit. And because of the deservedness issues and the limiting beliefs that I developed over my upbringing by uh, the hands of my stepfather, I developed, I, I believed it, you know, when you're told day after day after day after day, year after year, you're scum, you're nothing, you'll never, don't look at me like that, bang. And then your mother steps in and she gets the beating, you know, this is daily. So that became my world from a very, so I, you know, for me, faith now is actually about, okay, that was my world, it isn't my world anymore. Why? Because to to go back to the top of this conversation, Dr. John, I've detached I realise now that nothing out there will have control. I've taken that control back. If it rains and we're going to Cornwall, that's okay. Not, maybe not ideal, but it's okay. Because actually, I can't control it. Mm. And if Nottingham Forest get beat on a Saturday, that's okay. Because I can't control it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important for, certainly for, you know, for my own development and my own journey in terms of mental wellbeing. mm mm-hmm. Does, does that make
2: sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Every single word you said just now made sense to me. Um, you know, I, I can certainly relate to a lot of uh, the things that you said. Um, I remember catching up with a good friend of mine one evening that hadn't seen him for absolutely years, close to a decade. Um, and that day happened to be a day that his football team had lost. Mm. And he was furious. And uh, forget about it. You know, come mm. on, we're catching up. It's been a while. You know, and he, just, he could not get past it. And I just thought, gosh... We're going to leave it another 10 years then until we catch up. Let's hope your football team wins that night. Yeah, um, so yeah, it's sad that we, you know, we we um, have a tendency to um surrender our emotional well being to events that are totally outside our control. Um, and uh, you know, it's important to have that detachment. You know, I mean, whether it rains or shines or snows tomorrow, I don't really don't care. You know, um, yeah, as long as I wake up and I've got my health and my family are here with me. And, you know, let it do what it's going to do. I think we just have to go with it to be, you know, let let things happen and influence what we can. Just remember what we can actually do, what we are in control of doing, and just detach ourselves from the things that we can't control. Just, as you say, let it go.
1: Yeah, and what's been really profound for me there, Dr. Sean, in terms of getting that breakthrough is is the work of Rupert Spira. So we touched earlier on around his happiness, the happiness element. Um, Spira talks about peace, love, and happiness is who we are actually are at our true core being. That's who we are. And he uses, as I'm looking at your uh, uh, big screen on the T, uh, big TV screen on the wall now, he uses exactly that example. And he said, look, if you imagine you're playing a scene on that TV screen, that's happy, great. And then in the next film, it might be sad. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But the point is in our lives, these scenes, they come and they go mm-hmm. and they come and they go. Mm. The only one constant throughout that is us at our true core self. Mm-hmm. We are that blank TV screen and life plays out through us. And we must remain detached rather than being get engrossed in the character in that happy scene or the character in that sad scene. I was the character in that forest scene. Hence, all my control had gone. Whereas, what I've learned to do now is—and another example, which I think is great—is he uses beads. These beads are experiences in life, and he classifies experiences as being either of the mind, of the body, or of perception. Mm -hmm. So, we might have a pain physically, but it will go. You know, mentally, we might be experiencing a situation but it will pass.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The only constant is as at our true core self of being peace and love and happiness. And, and I believe strongly that that is, is who we are. And I think to have that level of insight, I don't know, I offer to you that as, as a medical professional, Dr. Sean, and how does that sit with your, from a general medical perspective and and, and two. A little bit more personally, how does that sit with you, that insight?
2: Um, I'm not really familiar with Spira's work. I, I think I, um, tonight's actually the first I've heard of it. So I'm going okay. to go and study and learn that. And maybe I can get back to you in a future podcast.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just to wrap that one up, Spira quotes, the discovery that peace, love and happiness are ever present within our own being and completely available at every moment of experience under all conditions is the most important discovery anyone can make.
2: Um, I'm inclined to agree with that. However, I really do recognize that to many people, it's not a particularly practical use of information in terms mm. of where they are in their heads at that particular moment in time yeah it's just something they don't need to hear um, as much as they they ought to you know, hear it and but uh, it doesn't really always help them in terms of where they are at that time so yeah, i mean I, whilst I'm inclined to agree with it um, and uh, you know it, it uh, does sort of resonate with with who I am um, we've got to look at you know what what will be practically used and, and achievable that will resonate with with the um a uh, great number of people uh, that, that we come across and people who are stressed as hell right now. Yeah. And I see them every day yeah. in my practice. Um, you know, I think if I was to say that to them, it probably wouldn't go down terribly well. Um, mm. So, you know, we've got to look at how we can put the message out there to people in a language that they will understand, they will assimilate, which is always a challenge, but it's always exciting and it's always fun. Um, and, uh, you know, once we manage to support people um, in such a way, then it's always great to see what results that can, can happen.
1: It's, and I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with what you've said there because obviously being on the journey for many years now, I've had the, um, the ability to rationalize situations. Mm-hmm. And as you say, in the heat of the moment, people don't necessarily have that no. that space or that headspace
2: you're right i think if someone came up to you with that quote in 1973 um, probably <laughs> would yes <laughs> they, they, they probably wouldn't get uh, the the reaction that, that you'd like um and uh you know it's, it's about really sort of tailoring the message for the right individual um and getting a good understanding which is why whenever i have a consultation with, with a patient or with a client the first few minutes are always about establishing rapport getting an understanding as to yeah. who they are um, what influences them, you know, what's the best way to approach and manage them. Is there an ideal way to approach them? There are some people that you just cannot speak to at all. Mm. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, that, that's just part of the game in, in consulting and, and uh, in medicine, um, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, we've still got to do the very best we can and, and get the message out there in terms of how to achieve health.
1: Okay, so in life in general, and obviously in, health, in the context of this health conversation dr sean is a good approach of one small step forward each day
2: i would say yes um my thoughts are that most people are only about two or three steps away from the level of health they're seeking no more than five steps it's about finding those steps what are the low-hanging fruit what are the simple steps that they can take what 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 will have a domino effect on everything else and um you know, that's what I work on with people. Once we you know, talk about what their health goals are, then we establish where they are in their health, within their physical health, within their emotional well-being, within their social health, and just say, okay, well, so what can we change here? What needs to change? What needs to change in your diet? What needs to change in your activity? You know, what practices can you undertake to achieve mindfulness? Who are you hanging out with? Why are you watching CNN 18 hours a day? And what's that doing to you at an emotional level? Mm. Um, so... Um, finding those steps and encouraging them to follow through with them and giving full support and holding them accountable on a regular basis, we can, see, we can see changes very quickly. So yes, we could look at one small step a day, but what I would say is continue that step. You know, if you make the decision today and say, right, you know, that's it from today, I'm going to drink um, a minimum two liters of water every single day. And that's great, but you probably won't notice the effects until about uh, a couple of weeks or so. And then after a month of doing that, you probably won't want to go back to drinking anything less than that. Um, so, you know, that, that's the power of taking small steps and, you know, having a stacking effect with all of these small uh, steps that we take. And we can sometimes end up in a completely different place in terms of our health and being. Very cool.
1: Absolutely. So as we've already alluded to, Dr. Sean, we'll be going into um, quick five-minute bites in subsequent uh, episodes. But by way of concluding this particular conversational interview, is there anything that you'd like to add? Uh, anything that... Um, you feel that has not been touched on that needed to, I've tried to stretch it a bit, particularly around the concept of, uh, and I'm glad you challenged me on that because that's what, that's what I was itching for. I wanted the challenge on that as a, was a naughty boy in me coming out to play again. Um, (laughs) But um, I I certainly think there's been a, you know, a diversity here in terms of creating a broad platform. Um, But is there anything that you think we've missed that's, that's crucial for this foundation level, um,
2: um, not at this level, no. I think, uh, you know, we've, we've got a lot of more things to talk about. And I always really enjoy talking to you and, and spending time with you. So I'm looking forward to further recordings. Um, but yeah, at this stage, let's, uh, let's see what happens next time.
1: Okay, great. So, so I offer my sincere gratitude to Dr. Shard for sharing his many insights and to you, the listeners for being part of this Mastering Life podcast. Until the next time, keep learning and loving and always
0: remember... Mastering Life starts by embracing our hearts. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember... Mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.